Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, and season five's run up to Christmas. This week, we're off to Indonesia with Australian caterer and food writer Lara Lee to explore one of my favourite reasons to write, food and identity, in Lara's debut cookbook, Coconut and Sambal. You know, the uh, the seller of the food had been perfecting that recipe for, you know, 20, 30, 40, sometimes, you know, 50 or more years, depending on how old they were. And when you're tasting that bowl of food, you're eating decades of refinement. Now, come with me and Lara to the villages of Indonesia to pound ginger and sniff the galangal as we find the stories behind the food of her heritage. I asked her why a girl from Australia felt so drawn to this part of her family's food. Yes, so I I grew up in Sydney and um, I had uh, very, I guess, limited access to Indonesian culture growing up. So, uh, you know, we, my dad would play us incredible Indonesian folk music that we would dance to around our living room on the record player. My Indonesian family would send us uh, batik dresses, which is like a wax resist kind of dyed pattern dress. So we would be dressed in Indonesian clothing. And of course, on the table, there was Indonesian food that my grandmother had cooked or my aunties or my dad or my mother, my Australian mother through my grandmother's recipes. But that really was the only access I had to my heritage. So uh, we were a poor working class family. So uh, going and visiting uh, to Indonesia was really an option for us until uh, I kind of reached adulthood. So the only understanding I had of my Indonesian heritage was through the stories that my aunties and my grandmother and my father would tell me and what I ate on the dinner table, which were these incredibly bold and punchy, vibrant flavors that really stay with you forever when you eat Indonesian food. And on the table, there was always such a variety of different dishes, whether it was, you know, really warming, comforting soups like soto uh, or, you know, gado gado, which is a vegetable salad with peanut sauce. Um, I remember my grandmother carving vegetables uh, like, you know, carrots and cucumber and tomatoes into shapes that look like flowers to decorate her gado gado and all of her dishes and for me you know watching that as a little girl was the most fascinating thing but I think those flavors and the memories of you know Indonesian food bringing the family together really stayed with me you know long into adulthood and moving into London I think the thing that I realized I miss the most when I when I moved to London. Um, obviously, I missed my family. But when I felt homesick, the thing that I really craved was Indonesian food. And what I soon discovered when I moved here nine years ago was that there wasn't a huge Indonesian community in in the UK, nor were there you know many restaurants there. I think there were two in London when I moved here. Whereas in Sydney, where I grew up, there are 40 or 50 Indonesian restaurants. Going to an Indonesian supermarket was, you know, really easy to do. Uh, and anytime I had a craving for something, we'd ring my auntie or, you know, my dad would whip something up and, and Indonesian food would be on the table that evening. So I think for me, I, I certainly... Uh, associate the feeling of home with Indonesian food, even though I didn't grow up on Indonesian soil. Mm. Yeah. And I think that you speak for probably so many people, you know, the diaspora, the Indonesian diaspora, and and so many other diaspora from all over the world, people whose food represents that sense of who they are and where they come from. And But unlike most of those people, you not only journeyed back to to find it, 
to really find the essence of of that culinary tradition and you and this is what your book is about and I think this is probably why the New York Times picked it as the 14 best books in autumn 2020 you did what so many people would love to do and I'd love to take you to your first food moment and ask you actually to read that very first passage where you go from your childhood memories to actually the place where it all started it brings to life what you've been told all your life Mm. yeah really I have to say when I wrote the that introduction it was like uh it felt very emotional to write this passage because that that memory of visiting Indonesia the first time it's so vivid in my memory uh and I was I think 20 or 21 when that when I first visited and, and everything suddenly made sense to me in terms of my life my parents everything so I'll I'll, I'll read for you uh, across the team we'll see the first time I watched the sky bleed tones of orange and red as the sun set over the sea in my father's hometown of Kupang Timor It struck me as a moment of coming home, but to a place I had never been before. A bustling collective of food vendors dotted the shoreline, the smoke from their coal and wood fires blurring the glowing horizon, the fragrance of lemongrass, kaffir lime and garlic filling the air. The pier, where local fishermen waited for their catch of the day to bite, was stained with splashes of black, the last ink squirts of life from squid and cuttlefish attempting to escape their captors. Surrounding the pier were the winding narrow streets that made up the old town, home to an eclectic mix of worn, tiled and rainbow-coloured terraces. There where the shops lined the ground floor, with the owner's homes perched above, was my grandmother's house, the place where my story begins. I feel emotional listening to that. It's such a wonderfully conjured picture of finding your way home. Let's talk about that house that you find your way to and you you recognise a lot of aspects of yourself. Tell us about Mm. that and how that might work. Mm. What was wonderful, um, you know, my my grandmother passed away 20 years ago, but her four-storey terrace home where my father spent his childhood and grew up is still standing there and is still owned by the family, although it's vacated now. Um, At the time when I first visited Timor, my auntie Lily was living there. So uh, it was still very much a a working, functioning home. Um, Without a a flushing toilet, you would pour a bucket of water down the toilet to flush the toilet. So, you know, in some ways uh, it, it wasn't a modern home, but it was filled with all of the things that you would need to have a happy functioning home. And when I first visited there, what is incredible are the collection of ornaments that my grandmother uh, you know, had on display, whether they were little cat statues or Jesus statues or pictures from her travels around the world. But going further into the house and seeing the decoration was something that really took me aback because uh, she had a vibrant love of colour. So her kitchen is every shade of blue imaginable from the blue hose that links to the sink, which was blue with a blue bucket, blue tiles, blue floor, blue stair rail. Everything was blue and gorgeous different shades of blue, a glow of blue. And 
going into her bedroom was a bright lime green that you could only imagine seeing, you know, as a, as a glow stick at a New Year's party. <laughs> you know, the, the hallway was, you know, a beautiful kind of shade of, uh, shade of purple. Other rooms were painted pink. Uh, and then around the house were, you know, you know, a bright, you know, a hot pink hen statue and different decorations and furnishings that were so, uh, I guess, kitsch and eclectic. But for her, I imagine at the time, she probably thought they were very fashionable. But I'm someone that has a really strong love of colour, which is reflected in our decorations in our home and in our the things I wear and the things I choose to, to buy. And I think when I, when I saw that shared love of color, even though she, you know, she'd passed away at this point, I really realized how much we had in common. Um, you know, she uh, was widowed at 36 years old, um, had four children to support. And at that point had just decided that to support her family, she would throw herself into what she loved, which was cooking and she opened a little bakery at the bottom of this four terrace home and would sell little kue, which are cakes, roti, which are breads, uh, to the local community. And it was a very popular shop. So going there, I, I realized how much, you know, the cooking, the colors, there were so many things that we shared in common. And you, and you changed your life in your 30s, didn't you? Your early 30s. We had parallel lives. So I also changed careers in my 30s. And in fact, I think, um, you know, I'm 37 now. So, you know, her changing careers and, uh, you know, opening her bakery kind of happened at around similar times in our lives. I've got a little boy now, so I've also got a child to support. So I think there are so many similarities. And, and I think that's what made it, uh, you know, really special in terms of writing the book, seeing at these lives that really mirrored each other, although, you know, there were, you know, many generations apart. So it's that connection, isn't it? And that's what runs mm. through the book. So that it's much, much more than recipes. What you're doing is you're, you're really drilling down, aren't you, with every single ex- food experience to try and find the essence of you, your family, your, your kind of identity and your connection with Indonesia. Because mm. a really important part of that was actually meeting Sri Owen, the first woman who brought Indonesian cooking back in 1976 to to Britain. And you met her in London and you've chosen her as your second food moment. I have, I have. Um, so so when I moved to London nine years ago, uh, I realised that the Indonesian community is small. There's less than 10,000 Indonesians here. And so I was really desperate to connect with other Indonesians that shared a passion for Indonesian food. Uh, and when I quit my job uh, four years ago uh, and went to culinary school, um, the, the idea was born to, to write a cookbook. I thought, you know, regardless of whether I would get a publisher or not, I wanted to write this book and, you know, bring to life my grandmother's recipes, but also the food of the broader Indonesia. And as part of that process, uh, I wrote a cookbook proposal for a cookbook competition called the Yan Kitso Award. And I came runner up to that. So I felt quite encouraged that I my cookbook concept, concept was a good idea. And so I thought I'd email Sri Owen. She, she has a website and an email. She's very modern. She's 82 years old. So she's you know, at the time she was 82. So she's 48 years older than me, but I sent her an email, not sure if she would respond. And uh, I sent her my cookbook proposal saying, look, would you mind catching up for a coffee? I would love to get some feedback from you. And she responded 
I think within hours or the very next day with a very long email saying how excited she was that there was another Indonesian foodie in London that had a writing background because I studied journalism at university. That was a trained chef that had Indonesian heritage and that she'd been waiting to find someone like me to pass her knowledge down to. So incredibly, you know, a very special friendship formed and I would go to her house as her student every Wednesday and we would cook incredible Indonesian feasts together. And I think it was a really mutually beneficial relationship because I was keen to learn. I was keen to have a mentor and I was longing to have my grandmother back to teach me her recipes. So Sri became a foster grandmother in many ways and she would invite uh, uh, you know, all of her friends to come over every Wednesday because her sous chef, Lara, was coming over to, to help her cook. So there, we were a team in the kitchen and, a, you know, a special kind of magic would happen when we were in the kitchen together. We really complimented each other. We didn't need many words. We just knew, you know, I would grab the shallot, she would grab the garlic, we would grind, we would mix, we would fry and, and everything would just come together. And every week I might say to her, oh, I'm really interested in learning how to make Indonesian martabak. Shall we try that one this week? And so we would make that, you know, make a martabak dough. We would make, you know, giant whole grilled fish called ikan bakar uh, and, you know, lots of different dishes. And over the course of a year, we had met, you know, every nearly every week, I would say, and soon... I think my that all of that knowledge that she had, I was writing furiously in notebooks, you know, recording conversations we had on my phone. Um, and soon after, I, I, I got a book deal and, uh, you know, traveled to Indonesia and met a lot of her contacts. So she introduced me to some wonderful Indonesian uh, home cooks and contacts that really helped create the book that you see today. It's, mm. a, it's such a wonderful story. And, and it's about, I wonder if any of this would have happened if you hadn't left Australia. Your mother's not mm. Indonesian is she? No, she's Australian. Uh, she did learn recipes from my grandmother and uh, thankfully she wrote a lot of those down. So when I was trying to, you know, rediscover my grandmother's cooking, um, my aunties and my mother, you know, sent me a lot of, a lot of these handwritten recipes. And also my, my grandmother had, had thankfully written uh, a lot of her recipes down in some, in some books as well. Yeah. Um, but it's that mm-hmm. displacement, I think. It's the, you know, leaving home twice in a way because it's the Indonesian your father your grandmother and then leaving Australia where the food culture is very different to to British food culture you know there's a lot of people who through economic immigration have have kind of brought their food with them uh, to to really establish themselves in their new place but that displacement sends you on this hunt and this hunt is a hungry hunt. And you find Sri Owen and you find your way back to Timor. Yes, definitely. And, and I think what was so special in, in writing the book was when I did go to Timor, my parents from Australia came to meet us, uh, my husband and I. And uh, for six weeks, we traveled. To, well, they, they traveled with me for six weeks of the six month trip. But for the six weeks they were with me, we were in Timor or in Bali or in East Java where my 
my father's sisters live, learning recipes with them. And it was very, very special because it was the first time that the entire family had been back in Kupang, Timor, in my grandmother's home since my grandmother had passed away. So it was a very special moment to see everyone together, to be learning my grandmother's recipes together and cooking together, but also looking through old photo albums that we had found, you know, gathering dust on the bookshelf and looking at photos of my my father as a child and my my grandmother making amazing cakes for her bakery things that I've never seen before so um you know that 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 process for me is something that I'll treasure forever forever and I think creating the book it, there was there was so much more that um that happened for our family than just putting pen to paper it, it really created memories we'll treasure forever yeah mm. and and in your third food moment you talk about going to jakarta um and really understanding the process so it feels to me like there's a process of you finding yourself there's this journeying that takes time and there's space and distance and you know you put put a lot of commitment into into really finding this thing that you're looking for but you find it in the cooking in Jakarta don't you you find the the time it takes the pride that it takes to make these pastes that are the essence of Indonesian cooking so let's move away slightly from your from your family history and go into the very roots of what Indonesian food tastes like and and it's time that makes it taste so good tell us a little bit about that Mm, I think as I traveled through Indonesia, what I began to recognize is that, uh, you know, Indonesians are very, very passionate about their food. And if you ask any Indonesian, uh, you know, what their favorite sambal is, for example, they will say their mothers or their grandmothers. So, you know, people are very proud of their family recipes. And as I visited different restaurants um, that would specialize in only one dish, a lot of restaurants would only have one thing on the menu. Um, for example, it might be mi udang, which is uh, prawn noodles and a, a big broth of gorgeous prawn noodles. And there would be a line of breakfast commuters waiting to be seated at these bustling restaurants that would serve a single dish. But the reason why they were so popular was because, you know, the uh, the seller of the food had been perfecting that recipe for, you know, 20, 30, 40, sometimes, you know, 50 or more years, depending on how old they were. And when you're tasting that bowl of food, you're eating decades of refinement, of getting to that perfect balance of flavor, you know, uh, no shortcuts. The noodles would be made by hand. Everything is made by hand and with love. So you're really eating, you know, um, very much a, a bowl of love, of history, of stories. And what I found when researching the book was I wasn't just curating or collecting recipes to take home. I was collecting stories. I was collecting legends and the meaning of these dishes to the different people that I met. And it was consistent across the archipelago as I was researching the book that, you know, Indonesian food is incredibly diverse. So whether you travel to Sumatra or to, you know, the west of Java, the central Java, the east of Java and so on, Every area has a very distinct flavor characteristic, very distinct signature dishes. But what was consistent was, you know, the generous hospitality of Indonesians and the care and love that they put into every single plate of food. And, and, and I really wanted to kind of take that back with me to 
to England when I wrote the book and to really communicate that in terms of the importance of food for Indonesians and how all-encompassing it is. They're always eating. It's very sensory and there's a lot of love put into their food. Mm. Yeah. And how do you equate that? Because ultimately it's a cookbook and the narrative here in this country is time poor. Nobody's got time to cook, you know. Okay, in lockdown we have. But, you know, we're too busy. You know, food is fuel, blah, blah, blah. Let's make it a little bit more interesting. How do you equate when you write something like that? It is so powerful and so meaningful on so many different levels. I mean, you do say, okay, Shri gave her blessing to grind spice pastes and sambal and a food processor. Yeah, okay, that will save you uh, maybe five minutes. But that's not the point, is it? Can you make these recipes quickly? Should you make these recipes quickly? Well, interestingly, when there there are certain uh, techniques that I had to um, I had to kind of remove my Western chef hat when I was learning a lot of these recipes because I think when we think of browning beef, you know, before it goes into a curry, or we might think that meat should be marinated overnight. A lot of the time when I was learning these recipes, meat would be marinated for 15, 30 minutes and then boom, you know, into the pan they go. Or beef for rendang, for example, isn't browned at all. So certainly there are some things that might be considered time consuming. Um, rendang would be one of them. It takes, you know, a good three, three and a half hours to create, it's, which is uh, for anyone listening at home, it's a caramelized beef curry that is loved in West Sumatra. But what is incredible about that dish is it is a one pot wonder. You don't, you make a spice paste, you don't have to brown the beef, you chuck it in a pot. And as long as you stir it every so often, you know, every 10 or 15 minutes or so, so it doesn't catch with a little bit of a rigorous stir at the end, you can create a, you know, a signature dish of the region. And, And there certainly are dishes that are made um, and fit for, uh, you know, creating quickly like nasi goreng, Indonesian fried rice, which was born out of leftover rice. So Indonesians eat rice with every meal. So there's always leftover rice. So nasi goreng uses leftover rice, a very simple spice paste, and you can kind of whip up dinner in 20 or 30 minutes. So there is kind of, um, I guess, a perception that it is labor intensive. And certainly there are some dishes. Um, One example would be Kue Lapis Legit, which is a thousand layer cake, uh, which my grandmother used to make for hours. And it's, um, it has usually, you know, 18 layers. Um, the one in my book has nine. So I have made some shortcuts there. And, uh, you grill it under the oven, uh, you know, every single layer, which is about one or two millimeters uh, thick is grilled under the oven. And then, you know, the next, uh, a little bit of batter is poured on top of it. So there are some labor intensive, intensive dishes, but there are some that you can rustle up quickly. So I think it depends on what you're looking for, but that that's similar to any cuisine. I think for me, it was very important to ensure that, um, the recipes in the book were accessible without compromising the integrity of the original dish. So of course, when something leaves a country of origin, it's never going to be the same because they're using different produce, different tools, the climate's different, you know, the, the storage is different. And in, Indone- in Indonesia, things are often made in the morning and actually eaten at room temperature for dinner, for lunch and dinner. So it's a very different style of eating. Um, but I, I really wanted to ensure that someone would pick up the book and be able to say, I can cook that, I can get those ingredients. And if there was, um, you know, something like, let's say, galangal that they couldn't get, then I provide a substitute for ginger, which might I add is not quite the same. They are different, but it would give you the spirit of the cuisine and 
that was important for me because, you know, having Sri, uh, Sri Owen be an ambassador for the cuisine for so many decades, I really felt like, uh, you know, the, it was a responsibility for me to ensure that I helped promote Indonesian cuisine and people wouldn't pick up the book and feel that it was too daunting to, to approach. So I wanted people to be able to say, I, I can cook nasi goreng, I can cook mie goreng or fried noodles on a Tuesday night and I will cook that you know, once a month because I love that dish. And that was important for me too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, and you do say this in your fourth food food moment, which is about the rendang, that it is about the philosophy of patience and perseverance and wisdom. Even though you do do the one pot, tell us about that moment when you go to the family of Pak Budi. Pak Budi, yes. what, What was wonderful in Indonesia was how I would meet um, a random stranger who would invite me into their home once they knew why I was there in Indonesia. So I met Pak Budi, who is a taxi driver in Padang in West Sumatra. And West Sumatra is home to the Minangkabau people and home to Rendang. So when Pak Budi picked my husband and I up at the airport, bearing in mind my husband is six foot six, uh, a Caucasian male, and he was wearing a cowboy hat for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I got it in Texas years ago. Anyway, so he was wearing a cowboy hat. So he really stuck out like a sore thumb because Padang is not, um, it's a little bit off the tourist trap, uh, apart from some surfers that go there for, for waves on a few islands off, off Padang. But, um, but generally speaking, it's very much a local city. So Pak Budi uh, picked up up and found out I was researching recipes for a cookbook. So he very excitedly explained that his mother was a fantastic cook. And he took us to his home, which was a a village on the outskirts of Padang. He didn't take us to our hotel. He was like, no, no, you must meet my family. And he started honking the street when he got to the village because he wanted all the neighbors to come out to see the, um, I suppose you'd say to see the, the cowboy that he had brought to the village. And so all these children ran out onto the street. It was really sweet. And we went into his home. I met his wife and his children and he had built his home with his own hands. So him and his son and his neighbors, the community always will help each other in Indonesia. He'd built his home with his hands. He'd carved a love heart in the, in the driveway, a giant like three meter love heart where he's parked his car. And uh, he said, tomorrow I will bring my mother and my auntie and they are going to teach you rendang. We're also going to teach you lots of the dishes of the Menangkabau people. Um, but this is my family. This is the kitchen where you'll be learning your dishes and let's come back tomorrow. But for now, I'll take you to a great restaurant around the corner. You can eat there and then we'll, we'll see you tomorrow. So um, amazingly, I, you know, I always kept my diary clear whenever I met people. Uh, people. So I would follow my nose to, to find good home cooks in the regions I would go to. I didn't really have an itinerary per se. So I met him the next day and for two days straight, we were cooking dishes that belonged to his mother and his mother and her sister, his wife and his children. We were all cooking these dishes together and their kitchen is not the typical kitchen you would expect. It's, um, it's a kitchen with a kompor, which is a, you know, two kind of portable gas stoves. And uh, we did all of our cutting with um, a blade with a Stanley knife on the on the concrete floor, all sitting cross-legged. We went to the market in the morning to buy all of the fresh produce because that's the Indonesian way, always buy fresh at 5 or 6 a.m. in the morning. 
And then we would start to grind these spice paste and we started to cook. And they explained the process of merandang, which is learning the philosophy of rendang, which teaches you wisdom in choosing the ingredients, you know, the perseverance of, um, you know, stirring the pot and the patience that rendang takes, you know, three or four hours to, to create. And it was just a very special time to see, you know, grandmother, son, granddaughter, all cooking together. And then at the end of this, we all sat on the on the concrete floor in his home and ate together. And it was a very special moment. And I really loved the hospitality and welcome I received that day. And and I really experienced that wherever I visited in, in Indonesia, because there is such great pride in teaching outsiders Indonesian cuisine, because I think Indonesians really want their food to be known around the world because it's so wonderful. It's called coconut and sambal. You say that coconut and sambal is like salt and pepper. It's on every table. Indonesian food is incredibly diverse. And, you know, wherever you travel, the dishes change and the flavor profiles change. And I really wanted to consider when I thought about the title of the book, what unites this cuisine? And and for me, wherever I traveled, it was sambal and the coconut. Every region ranging from Papua to Timor to Bali to Kalimantan or Sumatra has their own regional sambal and on the Indonesian table and sambal by the way is a hot chili relish it's a hot condiment that's eaten with every bite of food so it exists to complement a meal rather than to overpower it uh, and you'll find on every Indonesian table at least one or two different sambals uh, on the table and in, in a similar vein to rice where Indonesians will say if they have not eaten rice they have not eaten they feel the same way about sambal so if there isn't sambal on the table a meal just doesn't feel complete um, and what was amazing is that I think um, I spoke to a food historian uh, in Yogyakarta and she told me that there are, I think from my memory, 350, uh, 352 kinds of sambal across Indonesia. And now those are the official, uh, you know, written record of types of sambal, but there are obviously thousands of variations of each of those sambal. So it was very important to me to um, have a chapter of sambal in the book with lots of different types of sambal and also to, to put that in the title. And the other element of Indonesian cookery that I really felt was consistent across Indonesia was the coconut. And the coconut is used in such wonderful ways. So um, coconut water is drunk. You know, they're, um, I think, 88% are Muslim in Indonesia. So rather than drinking alcohol or beer, you'll often find coconut water being the drink of choice or, or hot tea. Um, but the young coconut flesh is put into, you know, sweets or into iced shaved drinks. Uh, you'll find coconut milk, of course, is made with, you know, freshly grated coconut and mixed together with water. Um, the coconut shell is used as, as utensils. Um, and even the discarded grated coconut uh, after you've made coconut milk would be used to scrub stains off the tiles or off the kitchen floor. And I really uh, loved and admired this no waste philosophy uh, that Indonesians have. And, you know, they really respect their produce. You know, they, they use coconut sugar, which is extracted from the, you know, the arenga palm, which the coconuts. And, you know, it is really is just a, a, a wonderful, um, a, a wonderful philosophy to have to use every component of a particular ingredient. And, and, and I really found coconut being used, you know, in curries, grated coconut in warm salads. It's really, really used very comprehensively in the cuisine. Mm. And I think that that's where the 
connection comes from there's the lack of um nonsense around food you know the 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 extra layers of fetishization and all that kind of stuff it's because it's poor people's food they they use everything because they have to and the value of food is the thing that's passed down you don't waste because it's valuable Mm, mm, definitely and you know even some of the poorest communities would eat a, a a plate of rice and a little bit of sambal. And sambal has such a strong umami flavor that you can really have a very celebrated meal with, you know, it could just be a, a plate of rice with sambal or maybe a fried egg on top with a little bit of ketchup manis drizzled over. But just something so simple uh, can be so satisfying and fulfilling. And I, and I think that's what was beautiful about, about Indonesians as well, the simplicity. It's, mm. it's a wonderful story that you tell about what food really means, what family is really about, what connection to food really means. Did it work for you? Did mm. it fill the void? Absolutely. I think I've, I think I felt um, such a, uh, such a longing and a need and an emptiness of, you know, what, who am I? I'm, I'm half Indonesian. I'm half Australian. And, and, and where do I belong? Is it, is it London? Is it Sydney? Is it Indonesia? And I think Indonesian food has definitely filled that gap. Um, it's, you know, it is my soul food. You know, I, I've reached, uh, you know, I've, I've gone a long way uh, of changing careers to realize what my soul food was. And what's really special for me, um, I've got a 15-month-old son, Jonah, who I'm introducing to those flavors. And I'm speaking uh, Bahasa Indonesian to him. So I'm teaching him how to speak Indonesian. And I even <laughs> dared to try to give him, I had some... Uh, frozen rendang in the freezer. I love having uh, frozen meals. It's so good. Had some leftover frozen rendang. So I defrosted it. My husband and I had it for dinner and I gave just a tiny little cube, a little, you know, maybe only two centimeters inside of, uh, in size of rendang to my son with a little bit of rice, knowing that it does have seven chilies in it. But I, I have been giving him some nasi goreng and some kind of dulled down fried noodles. And he loved it. I mean, he didn't actually, to be fair, his kind of face was a little bit deadpan and indifferent, but he didn't gag and he didn't have his stomachache later. Um, And he just ate it like as if I'd given him a cracker. So for me, that's fantastic. I'm introducing him to those flavors young. He doesn't find chili at all shocking to eat. Um, and, and I love that. So I want to pass that down to the next generation as well. So I think that it has filled the gap for me and it's definitely filled our home with a lot of joy. Thanks for listening to Cookie the Books. Next week, I will be scouring the night markets of the Burma of Supper Club hosts, the Rangoon Sisters. 